Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the break the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiast of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new highs. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. We be stuck to screens in 1980s. And we cave them and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles and territories is a nostalgic look back into our Gen X obsession with professional wrestling. Over the next 16 weeks, Barry, Captain Kiwi, and myself will dig deep into the wrestlers, organizations, and events that shaped our love of the scripted but never faked Squared Circle. Well, what is a wrestling territory, you might say? In this episode, we will dig deep into the history of the territory system, the movers and shakers of the industry, and what lasting effects did it have on the modern wrestling world we know and love today. Barry, welcome to the first episode of the podcast, sir. George, I am tickled pink to be here. Pink. Hmm. Pink? Sounds kind of, I don't know, Bret Hart-ish. Oh, Lord. I know a guy that's (laughs) really, really into Bret Hart. Captain Kiwi, what's up, baby? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Glad to be here. (laughs) So already we are setting a precedent being better than Gen X growing up. Instead of one guy (laughs) having to introduce both people, we introduce ourselves and do it in a nice chain. That's awesome. That works. (laughs) (laughs) Take that John and Mo. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we are a podcast that is produced and primarily distributed by Gen X Grown Up and Evergreen Podcast. We are very thankful to be on those two large platforms. And hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you heard about it because of one of those groups or individuals or platforms or whatever they're called, all the Twitters. You know, it, we're going to be everywhere. The Discords, the Twitters, the Instagrams, the Facebooks. Yeah, all those things. Exactly. All the things that anybody my age has no clue really how to use like we can click a button here and there and that's about (laughs) it (laughs) but this particular podcast is going to be a wrestling focused podcast now guys we talked about it before we started recording there are a billion wrestling podcasts out there i think what's going to make ours a little bit more fun a little bit more unique is the fact that we are focusing on the 70s 80s a little bit of the 90s of the wrestling era but specifically with kind of a Gen X view or perspective on the events, the wrestlers, the territories that we grew up with and loved. Most wrestling podcasts these days are more about what's going on today. And there's nothing wrong with what's going on today. It's just not quite as special as just having something that's in your area, in your territory, that only you and your friends and your parents and everyone else around you has that special connection with. I mean, I know you had some, George. Aaron, I know you had a couple of them. I know I certainly did when I was growing up. These are even some people that you may not even heard of except for in these territories. Yeah, I think it's super fun to remember back to 
people and wrestlers that I have memories of from when I was a child. I don't necessarily know all the facts of that person's career or what different roles they may have played in the organization or when they were good guys or bad guys, but just remembering like a Mr. Wrestling number two. Nobody <laughs> watching wrestling today knows who the hell Mr. Wrestling number two is unless Moondog you saw spot. him back then. Moondogs. I, I mean, J- Jimmy Valiant for crying out loud. Well, Nobody, true. You know, it's Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace. <laughs> wow. It's just so much fun. And that's what I want this podcast to be. Aaron, I know that you kind of came into the wrestling scene a little bit later than Barry and myself did. You've talked about it with us, but uh, you have a unique perspective in that you were actually part of a wrestling territory yourself for a little while. That's correct. For, I would say, probably about a year, I wrestled with a uh, promotion in Hawaii called Hawaii Pro Wrestling. It was short-lived, unfortunately, and then once it closed, kind of fell off the map. Then real life kind of took over. And (laughs) Well, look at it this way. You made it out of there with both of your ACLs intact. So it's definitely a step ahead of a lot of other people. Probably one or two concussions as well. There you go. And I'm just, I mean, you're ahead of me in that department for sure, because I think I've got like seven or eight. So you're, you're doing well. good. But I think it's really interesting though. You actually got into a wrestling ring with other professionals, trained, worked, uh, maybe you put on a show, went to a show or wrestled on a show. Maybe you didn't. That doesn't matter. Most wrestling fans, the largest majority, 99.9% never have that experience. And I can't wait to hear your experiences and how those relate to the things that we're going to talk about, which in this particular episode, as I mentioned in the tease earlier, is the territory system itself which your Hawaiian group was kind of its own little territory, right? Right. We had uh, three different uh, promotions. There was uh, Hawaii Pro Wrestling, Hawaii Championship Wrestling, and then the IXWF uh, Island Extreme Wrestling Federation, which was actually part of the NWA. Uh, ah. And they Hawaii for a while. So we're going to talk quite a bit about that. It's interesting that you mentioned the NWA because that's going to be the heavy part of our next segment that we're going to get into coming up right after the break. What is a territory? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tuesday Night Titans Wrestling TNT. Featuring the heroes. The villains. The glamour, the glory. Tuesday Night Titans Wrestling TNT. Every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, only on USA. It's Dynamite. All right, guys, let's start our first official segment as part of the Turnbuckles and Territories podcast. What is a territory? Now, the territory system, I guess it's kind of still in effect today in a much, much smaller degree than what it was in our heyday of watching wrestling. But in its infancy, it started in the late 1940s, I believe 48 feels like when the NWA was officially formed. And I, I'm not saying that's the first part of the territory system, but that's kind of the first 
North American governing body that most people who are professional wrestling fans probably know and remember. Well, and it's also one of the longest lasting ones, too, in some form of fashion. I mm-hmm. mean, even your your casual wrestling fan nowadays, if you hear the word or the letters NWA, you have some kind of a touchstone that you can go back to on that. And that's because it's been around since, you know, like you said, the late 40s. And just the acronym itself, National Wrestling Alliance. When you say NWA, that acronym pops into your mind pretty quickly, unless you're a music fan like Barry. It might have a different (laughs) acronym meaning that we're not going to use on the podcast, but it's still very prominent to this day. It holds a storied history. Aaron, if you had to define, since you were in one, what would you say a territory is? I would say territory is kind of a, a just a like a region or a location of different wrestling uh, promotions. Uh, could be one, could be several. They may have uh, some kind of deal with each other. Mm-hmm. They may not, whether they do like cross promotion uh, shows uh, or they could be rivals. And rivals both storyline and in real life, right? Correct. Because yeah. the whole thing about professional wrestling, it was viewed upon for a long time as a legit legitimate sport starting from you know like the 1900s all the way through there's there have the been Cardi championships days. of professional wrestling right 1948 when the NWA comes into existence starts recognizing some of those champions that have been going around the country as the quote unquote heavyweight champion of the world yeah and i think it's interesting because You have real world examples of territories, which are generally bound by geographical location, as you were talking about, Aaron. Correct. So you might have a group that's in one part of the United States, another group that's in a different country, and they would go around to different cities in that geographical location and put on shows. And that area would be their territory. Right. To me, though, not just geographic location, what defined a territory for me as a young person growing up in the 70s was really what I got to see on TV. And this was before there was any cable distribution. I had four channels. Really, you have three. You have ABC, CBS, NBC and PBS, which I only watched for Electric Company, maybe Sesame Street when I was a kid. Mr. Rogers. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. There you go. Nice. These wrestling territories, they were usually affiliated with a particular channel in their home area. So like I watched a lot of one we're going to talk about a little bit later, Florida Championship Wrestling, which was Mm -hmm. based out of Tampa. That Tampa station is the one who would record the shows and then it would get distributed through other affiliated channels in Florida. That channel would provide it to the other TV stations around in Florida. So I would watch it on my local channel here in Tallahassee. You guys had the same thing, I'm sure. Believe it or not, there's actually a term they use for that. It's called bicycling. And that's where they would, you know, just as you said, film it in one location and send it out to any of the local areas that are, or the major affiliates. Like for example, in my area, you mentioned you were Georgia championship. I was championship wrestling association or CWA better known as Memphis wrestling. Right. The funny thing is it's based out of Nashville. So you would have these things, you know, traced back and forth through a local affiliate in Nashville, Knoxville, Memphis, Arkansas, anywhere that's within basically driving distance. That was the key, right, Aaron, was driving distance. 
Right. In Hawaii, it was a little bit different. Um, <laughs> okay. You're not driving too far in Hawaii. <laughs> uh, occasionally, we'd fly to like Oahu or something like that. Not not too terribly often. As far as uh, uh, cable, being a, uh, a wrestling fan a little bit later, I always had cable. WWF at the time, WCW, they were uh, readily available and uh, easy to access. But as far as the uh, the local shows, generally they'd, uh, they'd air on public access. Oh, really? Public access. Okay. Right. Well, and actually, Aaron, kind of from speaking of your era, a good example of what territory style wrestling was, if you think back in the mid to late 90s, ECW would be a great example of what territory wrestling was because right, right. you only really saw ECW stuff up until a certain point if you were in that area. Right. You know, you may have heard of it. You may have heard people talk about it. You may have seen videos that were swapped out, but you never actually really got that kind of connection unless you were up in like the New York, Philadelphia kind of area. So, yeah, I tried to do a podcast episode on Gen X Grown Up about ECW, which, <laughs> as you can imagine, I tried to cram in a bunch of information for Mo and John because Mo and John are not necessarily wrestling fans. They enjoy it, but they weren't like religiously watching it as children as the three of us were. And trying to cram the history of a territory like <laughs> ECW into one episode, I found to be fruitless, pointless, and very frustrating. So that's not what we're going to be doing here in our next segment, though, we are going to attempt to talk a little bit about the international territory. So these are territories that are outside of the United States, since our podcast is based in the United States, just like a territory might be based in Nashville. Anything outside of that is international. So when we come back right after the break, we're going to talk all about the international territories. With wrestling superstars, it's like having a real match right in your own home. There's Jimmy Superfly Suka. The Iron Sheik. Hulk Hogan. And Big John Studd. And now you can fly them and flip them in the Swing them, Fling them wrestling ring. Wrestling superstars and new wrestling ring each sold separately from LJN. All right. Welcome back, guys, to the Turnbuckles and Territories podcast. As I said before the break, we're going to talk now about international territories. Uh, as you might imagine, the world is an extremely large place, and there <laughs> are quite a few wrestling fans all around the world, and they need to be serviced by wrestling territories. We're not going to try and talk about all those wrestling territories <laughs> because we want to try and keep this podcast to a reasonable length for you, but we do want to talk about a few of them in general, and then we'll get into one a little bit more in depth just so you can kind of understand the flavor and history of what international wrestling is like. Barry, why don't you hit the people up with a list of our favorite territories? You got it, buddy. And actually, when we went through this and started talking about it, we all kind of agreed that while wrestling is available throughout the entire world, there's really three big points of interest that are outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. You have Japanese style wrestling, you have Spanish or Mexican style wrestling. Lucha Libre. Lucha, yeah. exactly. And then you have Canadian. So we're going to talk on a couple of the areas from those areas. The first one, the big one that most people know is New Japan Pro Wrestling. Yeah, it's right. It's based in uh, Shinagawa, Japan, which is just outside of Tokyo. It's actually been around since 72. I'm just wow. kind of surprised. It's almost as old as I am. Yeah. And uh, you may have heard the name of the guy who actually founded this uh, gentleman by the name. Of, he just recently past, if I'm not mistaken, Antonio Inoki. Oh, right. right. Yep. Yeah. So you had New Japan. And then on the other side of Tokyo, you had All Japan Pro Wrestling. That's also been around so about the same time. So 
Aaron, kind of to your point from earlier, they were big rivals. Right. They had a lot of crossbreed, crossfed on that, but they also generated some great rivalries. And that one was founded by a, a gentleman by the name of Giant Baba. And I've actually seen Giant Baba fit, uh, tapes of him wrestling. That is not a man you want to make mad at you. That's for certain. <laughs> well, the Japanese style or strong style, strong as they style. call it, right? Yep. It's very hard hitting. It's got its roots in real fighting. No yeah. question. And they oh, yeah. have put on legit shoots as part of their shows from time to time. And that's why I think including them in the international territory list is absolutely essential. I mean, right. you Definitely. talk about Antonio Inoki. He's one of the greats, no matter what you're talking about. But I do wonder sometimes, and we're going to talk about this as we we get into it a little bit. These guys who owned these territories oftentimes were the stars yeah. of the territories. <laughs> Isn't it funny how that works out? <laughs> Isn't it strange how, you know, hey, I'm going to put all the money up for this, but I'm going to hold the belt forever, you know? I kind of wonder, you know, sometimes if you're like, you know, this would be a fun way to get on TV. Like, did anybody start a wrestling promotion just to get themselves on TV? I wonder if that ever happened. I'm not going to throw anything out there, Cody Rhodes, but I'm not definitely going to say anything. (laughs) I am not going to throw anybody under the bus on that one. Whatever else. We got some Mexican, you said, right? We do. Uh, World Wrestling Council. Actually, it wasn't Mexican. It started in Puerto Rico. Right. Uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, actually, strangely enough, about the same time, it started in 73. The other two started in around 72. This one has a whole group of individuals that kind of started it. The biggest name that came out of the Puerto Rican area, the last name Cologne. Mm, there are a ton of Colognes that have been in wrestling. So Carlos Colon Sr. was the original owner. Then you had, you know, Cologne Jr., Victor Hovica. And this is the one that threw me off. Gorilla Monsoon. I did not know he was a part of that. Yeah. Part of the founding trio sold out his interest when he joined WWE back Mm -hmm. in the day. Very interesting. The World Wrestling Council also is, I would say, infamous or notorious. If you ever go look (laughs) at a series by Vice called The Dark Side of the Ring, very good Mm -hmm. series about professional wrestling. They do go over the Brody incident. There was a wrestler who unfortunately was killed by one of the promoters associated with World Wrestling Council right before the show took place. Stabbed to death in the locker room. Yeah. And Tony Atlas was there. He was Mm -hmm. kind of the the closest eyewitness to the thing. We'll get into that in another podcast because I really (laughs) want to do a podcast about these specific territories, um, each one of them. But we've got our whole first season already planned out and already laid out. Oh, yeah. Uh, Before we go any further, though, Aaron, I really want to know about the one we're going to talk the most about in this segment, and that is a Canadian territory. When you think of Canada, what do you think of? Moose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's uh, there's a couple different promotions in Canada. Probably the most well-known would be Stampede Wrestling. Uh, It was Mm. based in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Started in uh, about 1948, I believe. Yeah, right. Uh, by Stu Hart, who kind of created this whole Hart dynasty with his kids wrestling. There's a uh, Al Oeming. Oeming. Uh, it's Canadian. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He was a zoologist as well, so the Moose Man. Bruce Hart, Ross Hart, Bill Bell. Okay. And surprisingly, Vince McMahon actually owned it for a matter of months. Yeah. (laughs) There was a whole story about how he ended up owning it. And ownership is generally when somebody pays for something. Mm -hmm. Although I have heard... that maybe that didn't quite happen in this case. We'll get into it quite a bit. Slight financial problem there. Yeah. Well, that first run, so it was Stampede Wrestling and, well, so originally it had a couple of different names and stuff, but eventually 
it became Stampede Wrestling. Right. And it started 1948, and what we call the first run went until 1984, which is the Vince McMahon uh, purchase mm-hmm. kind of thing. But <laughs> in, qu- in air quotes, purchase. <laughs> there were some really interesting firsts when it comes to Stampede Wrestling, weren't there, Barry? Oh, yeah. I mean, the one that I immediately jumps to my mind, and there's been some debate on this, but everything that I found lists that as the first example of a ladder match. Oh. It was uh, 1972. It was uh, two performers named Crawford and Torquemada. Torquemada. Okay. Yeah. I know that guy. All and right. they had like this giant wad of cash suspended from the, the top <laughs> of the ring. And it was whoever could get to it first, not only won the match, but got the cash. That's like, you know, that's where money in the briefcase probably came from. They probably got that idea from you that, had right? Money in the bank. You had the, the bull whip on a pole match. All oh, that kind yeah. of stuff kind of came from this. Viagra on wow. a pole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To be fair, it's Canadian money, so it's Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Aaron, my buddy, my friend, my pal, take me to the dungeon. Tell me about okay. Stu Hart's dungeon. Hold on, hold on. This is not that kind of podcast, hey, ladies hey, and gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey! I said Stu Hart's dungeon. Pal. No, you just said the dungeon. Now you're backtracking. <laughs> I was about to get my chains and my whip, but down right. boy, down boy. <laughs> Well, the, uh, the the dungeon was the uh, the wrestling school training area for uh, for Stampede Wrestling. Uh, it also did some uh, uh, training for strongmen, uh, bodybuilders, and uh, some pro football players as well. It's considered one of the hardest schools to get to uh, to graduate from. Wasn't it in their basement? It was. I uh, doing my research about Stu Hart. I found uh, some very interesting bits of information. Okay, he would invite or he would allow people to come to the home and be stretched. Uh, he stretched a priest. He stretched a rabbi. This is not true. <laughs> It's not turning into a joke. Where's the punchline, Aaron? I think Stu Hart delivered the punchline. Even though I don't have one source that said that he didn't charge money to train his talent in the dungeon. That's interesting. So he basically was training people for free. I guess if you lived, that was enough payment alone. And a lot of it was his family, too. So, well, that's true. In that Vice series on the Stampede Wrestling, one thing that I found very interesting, anybody that Stu Hart trained or worked with, he apparently tried to treat them very well. He was known as a very truthful promoter, which is a very rare thing in the yeah. professional wrestling business. Um, on that Gen X Grown Up ECW show, I talked a lot about how Paul Heyman kind of stiffed a lot mm-hmm. of the wrestlers toward the end of the uh, run and how much he owed them in the lawsuits and stuff that I found through court records. But Stu Hart was known as the opposite of that, and that's why most of his wrestlers and fans were completely loyal to him during the day. I find it very, very interesting and very unique for somebody to have that reputation in this business. There was a story that's been told Mm. that there was a young man who tried to steal Stu Hart's car out of his driveway. Okay. Stu Hart catches the kid. Bret Hart is asleep in his bed. Hears what's going on, sees the car outside stuck in the driveway because it was Canada. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's snow because (laughs) it snows all the time. (laughs) And the car got stuck as the kid was trying to steal it. Stu Hart apparently snatched the kid. Bret Hart wakes up a few minutes later hearing commotion going on in the kitchen. And he's like, oh, dad's just stretching one of my brothers because apparently that was a regular thing. And he looks around in the bedroom and he's like, no, there's that brother. There's that brother. All the brothers are here. So he gets curious and he walks out. This is two o'clock in the morning. He's Mm -hmm. expecting this to be normal behavior. Mm -hmm. He goes down to the kitchen and he sees 
his dad has this strange kid that he's never seen or met before stretched on the kitchen table and he's <laughs> just working this kid and he worked the kid for like four or five hours right didn't call the police for trying to steal his car called the kid's parents had them come pick him up and then gave the kid a job in stampede wrestling i thought he was going to let him marry one of his daughters because i thought that was kind of a tradition <laughs> right you know if you went through the dungeon you got to marry into the family so well, i know jim neidhart got stretched that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> All right, so I'm really curious. You guys mentioned something about WWF or WWE, whatever you want to call them. I actually ended up buying this for a while. I want to hear this story. Aaron, what's the deal with this? Well, um, there was a uh, uh, one of their uh, their Stampede events when they were still owned, not by WWF. There happened to be a riot that broke out. Mm, right. <laughs> a riot in Calgary? Well, however do you mean? Go ahead. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. <laughs> because of that riot, there was a number of the fans were actually injured. Okay. And because of that, Stampede was actually banned from holding events in Calgary for about six months or so. Oh, wow. Uh, unfortunately, because because of that, revenue started to drop. Then Vince McMahon stepped in and said, hey, I want to go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll buy Stampede Wrestling <laughs> and I'll bring it into the WWF. <laughs> I love your Vince McMahon voice. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's interesting to point out because I know the story you're talking about there, Aaron. There was a wrestler who had worked in Japan and he came over to Calgary and he was working with some people there and he apparently punched a really old elderly guy Good Lord. in the audience <laughs> because the guy had smacked him in the leg on his way through the ring. And this is a thing that's unique to that era of wrestling. The mm-hmm. wrestlers would literally, there were no barricades. They weren't separated out no. from the people. They would literally just walk the aisle of the fans sitting in folding metal chairs. And so the fans oftentimes, because they believed these storylines to be true because it was kayfabe era and this is you know it was promoted that way he smacked this wrestler in the leg this wrestler picked this guy up damn near choked him out punched him in the face and everything turned out this guy was a longtime fan of the he went to every event (laughs) so all the fans there knew this guy (laughs) and so that's where the riot got started there was a council an organization in canada that regulated sporting events which wrestling at that time was considered to be a regulated sporting event and they're the ones who handed down this ban for six months okay and like you said aaron back in the territory days if you weren't going to shows, you weren't making money. Right. And somebody named Vix McMahon decided, I'm going to purchase this. But this is the interesting thing. According to Bret Hart, yeah. Vince McMahon never transferred one penny to Stu Hart ever wow. for that promotion. That's why he didn't own it for very long, because he just said I buy it and never gave any of the money to Stu Hart and the organization never did anything else. They did some weird stuff where they promoted WWF shows on Mm -hmm. the time slot that Stampede Wrestling had in Canada on those local stations. And that was about it. Right. Well, he did, however, take uh, Bret Hart, Davey Boy Smith and the Dynamite Kid add him to the WWF roster and then gave the uh, the promotion back to uh, to Bruce and said, hey, you know what? It's all yours. We don't want it. <laughs> I took your best talent. Have fun. Your best. I took your family. What are you talking about? Best talent. He took his whole family. <laughs> Jeez. So that's kind of the second run now, right? So you have Stu Hart, 48 to 84. Vince McMahon, the shyster from 84 right. to 85. But then Bruce Hart takes over in 85, Aaron, right? And he, he kind of does 
does some stuff, doesn't he? Right. Uh, he took over and was able to kind of uh, help the, the talent they still had. For example, Owen Hart, uh, Brian mm. Pillman, Chris Benoit were able to, you know, kind of uh, make them stars of, of the promotion. That's impressive. This was when uh, Jericho was coming through there too, wasn't he? Correct. So you're talking about three or four names there that most modern wrestling audiences now know as big time superstars. Right. Oh, yeah. If you credit that to Bruce Hart as opposed to Stu Hart. Now, I know all of those guys talk about being trained by Stu Hart in the dungeon. Right. But Bruce Hart being the man who really promoted their careers and got them going because most of those guys ended up later on in ECW, WCW, WWF, WWE. Japan, Mexico. Japan, Mexico, everywhere. I mean, hell, Jericho is still wrestling all over the damn place to this day. Exactly. Oddly enough, he's the only one of those four that's still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of sad. Yeah, we needed better examples. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there were other runs of Stampede Wrestling as well. We could go on, but Stampede Wrestling essentially went went from 1948 to 2000. 1008 60 yeah. years with different launches and relaunches and whatnot but that's the international territory scene when we come back after the break we really need to get into the heart of the matter with the u.s territory scene oh yeah hi how are you we're in piper's pit and i can't believe it i'm sitting here with the greatest wrestling manager of all time Captain Lou Albano, and uh, Captain, I ain't never had nobody make no phone calls. What you doing, man? Who you talking to? The president? What you doing? Oh, I can't hear you. Roddy with the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Action Hotline. Listening right here, talking about Roddy Piper. Who? Now, 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 they're talking about Captain Lou Albano. They're talking about the Samoans. Wait a second. What's the number? What's the number? Let me call the number. Boys and girls, time to get to the heart of the territory matter. That is the U.S. territory system. And we have a significant amount of territories in the United States. (laughs) Now, first of all, the United States is a large geographical area as it is. It's much larger than most other countries. Um, Most of our states are even larger than other countries around the world. However, what is interesting is that each one of these wrestling promotions had their own unique feeling and flavor, flair, no pun intended, but we're still going to talk about (laughs) it. Um, And they're all different. So I'm going to start off with a list of different territories that we're eventually going to get to talking about in this podcast, but not today. First one, my favorite championship wrestling from Florida based out of Tampa, Florida, 1961 to 1987, had guys owning it like Cowboy Clarence Preston Luttrell. (laughs) <laughs> That's a Eddie, great name. I know, right? Eddie Graham, arguably the father most well-known of the owners. Hiro Matsuda and Duke Kamuka, they all owned it as well. Then you've got world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, 1966 mm-hmm. to 1990. That's the Von Erich territory, right? Fritz Von Erich, Jerry Jarrett actually owned it with them for a little while with Kerry and Kevin Von Erich. Crazy Texas territory. Southwest championship wrestling out of San Antonio, Texas. That's another territory right in that same big geographical state, 1978 to 1985, so a much more short-lived territory. Joe Blanchard, Tully Blanchard's father, ran that one. I believe he was his father. might have been his brother, his cousin, or his wife. Who knows? (laughs) Everybody in the wrestling world is crazy. Um, Extreme Championship Wrestling, which we've mentioned several times on the podcast already, based Mm -hmm. out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, from 1990 to 2001. Everybody knows Paul Heyman owned that organization, but before he did, Joel Goodart and Todd Gordon 
also were the original owners and creators of that organization. It was actually called Eastern Championship Wrestling for, yep. for a short time. It had a different name even before Eastern Championship Wrestling. Yep. Everybody knows it as Extreme Championship Wrestling these days. Uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, another of my favorites, mainly because I grew up right in the border of Florida and Georgia. Mm-hmm. That was based out of Atlanta, Georgia from 1944 to 1985. Arguably wow. the oldest territory that we're going to talk about. It was a founding member yep. of the NWA. Paul Jones, Jim Barnett. At one time, there was an organization owning trio of Jack and Jerry Briscoe with Ole Anderson, believe it or not. Arn didn't want to pony up on that one? Arn was not a real Anderson. <laughs> I'm going to get into that another time. <laughs> And eventually, of course, we know during the demise, Vince McMahon ended up owning WCW. Right. Then out of our friend Barry's backyard, Memphis Territory. Yes. Continental slash Championship Wrestling Association based out of Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee Mm -hmm. from 1977 to 1989. Of course, Jerry Jarrett, the owner who he split off from another one of his organizations, along with the longtime superstar of the territory, Jerry Lawler. Oh, my gosh. And a lot of people don't give this one credit because this invented what was called Memphis style wrestling. Memphis style wrestling kind of transitioned everything from, hey, two guys meeting in the ring and doing a lot of wrestling moves to stuff happening in the parking lot, stuff happening backstage, stuff happening everywhere. See, I, I got to stop Barry right now. Otherwise, this is going to become a championship <laughs> wrestling podcast for the next six it's episodes because yard, he's already going into <laughs> No, but you're right. Absolutely. It invented a whole new style, as a lot of these territories did. A lot of these territories are known for their own style of wrestling. Jerry Jarrett broke away from the organization he was a part of because that organization featured primarily tag team wrestling, and he wanted to go more individual wrestling. So there are lots of different reasons to have and form a territory outside of just the general geographic or televised programming regional kind of concerns. But I want to talk about the main wrestling territory (laughs) in the United States. And the reason why I say Maine is because it was the first to go national. Yes. And that is a big turning point. I believe you're talking about American Wrestling Association, also known as the AWA. Absolutely, sir. Barry, since you know about it, kick us off. I did a little homework on this one. Uh, AWA based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of these guys that you've seen come up in wrestling are from that Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Most of them came through the AWA umbrella umbrella shall we say. So it started in 1960, ran to right around 91. And uh, <laughs> the main founder on this was a gentleman by the name of Vern Gagne. Now, Wally Carbo also you know, was Gagne. the original. Gagne, Gagne. I've heard it pronounced about <laughs> six different ways. So You couldn't get the Canadian guy's name. You're going to give him shit for Vern Gagne? Hey, 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 hey. That's Canadian. United States. <laughs> you know what? I don't want to piss off either one of them. So we're just going to call him Vern, all right? <laughs> so this actually started in the uh, Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. And uh, it was, as George mentioned, one of the founding members of the NWA kind of came from this. Vern broke off from the NWA when they refused to kind of give him a shot at the world championship to what you were talking about beforehand. He was one of those guys that was an in-ring performer as well as an owner. When they wouldn't give him the shot, he said, to hell with you. I'm going to go start my own. Well, yeah, AWA, this thing just kind of took off because they did all kinds of, you know, Vern Gagne from 
all of his experiences throughout his entire career. He had made contacts throughout the entire U.S. So they spread this to, you know, from Minneapolis straight out to like Chicago, Memphis, San Antonio, Milwaukee, Minnipeg. All of these places kind of had some type of a foothold in AWA. I want to say, and George, correct me if I'm wrong on this. At one point in time, this was the largest independently owned territory of them all. It took up the most space. Yeah, I mean, because... Everybody assumes that WCW was, and WCW was the largest privately owned organization monetarily. Yeah. But that's because it had Ted a billionaire Turner. behind yeah. it, right? <laughs> right. But no, as far as space, it spanned from Canada all the way down to the south and all the way west to California. Their mm-hmm. programming was shown nationwide across a huge network of TV channels long before cable really got its teeth into professional wrestling. And that was due, as you said, to Vern Gagne's contacts and history in the wrestling business. Now, don't get me wrong. Vern Gagne is not a saint. We've (laughs) talked about Stu Hart being the rarity. Vern Gagne was not a rarity for owners, promoters in the professional wrestling world. Well, and you had mentioned a few people that had actually come out of AWA that got their start. I mean, you had people like, you know, Mean Gene Okerlund mm-hmm. got his start in AWA. Bobby the Brain Heenan really got his foothold in AWA. Not to mention a, a little blonde kid from Florida. You may have heard of a guy named Hulk Hogan. Who? Yeah. <laughs> and you talked a little bit about, you know, Gagne. Let's just say he wasn't exactly the nicest guy. Mm. He had a tendency to make some really bad business calls. Like not paying his wrestler. They weren't they weren't <laughs> bad for him necessarily. <laughs> they might have been bad for everybody else. Well, and for some reason, you know, and George, you were talking about it beforehand. I think this is one of those ones that kind of like Jerry Lawler in Memphis, where he felt the need to put himself as the champion of his own promotion oh, for right. so long. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he did it like 10 times. Right. I don't think we can get out of a segment talking about AWA without talking about his not only putting himself as the champion, but the nepotism. Yeah. Greg Gagne, for God love him, he's a nice guy. Yeah. The man couldn't beat my left toe in a wrestling match. <laughs> He was the antithesis of a professional wrestler. He did the barefoot ring thing, which Mm -hmm. the Von Erichs also championed. And the Von Erichs, by the way, were specimens of physicality. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Greg Gagne looked like your postman after he had been on a diet for six months. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's probably one of the reasons they put him with uh, Jim Brunzel. I mean, you know, you have something like Jim Brunzel, who was a great in-ring performer, performed for years on end. Mm -hmm. But it's just he does great tag team he doesn't really do a lot on an individual basis so yeah well and you talk about jim brunzel i mean we know him later on in life being part of the killer bees with b brian blair right b brian blair. it was a very fun tag team but you got to see their technical prowess you have to carry a guy like greg Ganya. yeah just to not belabor the point but i think you talked about bad decisions yeah barry that Vern mm-hmm. Gagne made i think it's important to note you also mentioned hulk hogan kind of started to make his bones in the AWA. Yeah. Arguably the worst decision of any promoter in wrestling history has to be the fact that Gagne promotes his son mm-hmm. over Hulk Hogan so mm-hmm. much that Hulk Hogan ends up leaving the territory and then <laughs> becomes the American wrestling icon that we all know and love from the WWF cartoon rock and wrestling era. 
Vern Gagne could be Vince McMahon. Oh, he well, I mean, he's dead, Vin- but he yeah. could have been. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon. I mean, when you look at the talent that he had access to and the fact that he was actually giving Vince a run for his money on a week to week basis, you know, but that's that's again, we could do a whole episode on how Vince McMahon became Vince McMahon. But oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and we probably will at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's important, you know, that right around that time when Hogan left was about the time that you started seeing kind of the rats leaking the sinking ship, so to speak. Mm, right, you know, right. You had guys like Adrian Adonis, Dave Schultz, Wendy Richter, uh, Jesse Ventura. I forgot that Jesse was in AWA for Jesse a Jesse Ventura is a great name. And it's important to note some of these people, right? Because Jesse Ventura is one of the rare ones who made the leap to mainstream media attention with the Arnold Schwarzenegger films, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So you see people that developed in this territory, not just in professional wrestling, but also in other forms of entertainment. Mean Gene Okerlund mm-hmm. did a number of commercials. He was in that really fun, awesome, ready to rumble movie <laughs> I love that movie. Actually, you mentioned that there was somebody else that was in that movie that really kind of, quote unquote, made their bones in AWA as a manager before he ever became a wrestler. And that's Diamond Dallas Page. Diamond Dallas Page. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, he just if you ever get a chance, give yourself a present and go back and look at some of the videos of DDP when he was a manager in AWA. You cannot find a more 80s look on the planet. <laughs> Oh my God, it is beautiful. I love it. It's like he has been doused head to toe in neon and hairspray. You know, he's one of the rare wrestlers too to hold his gimmick for as long as he did through as many organizations. Most wrestlers, when they would change from one organization to another, would change their name, change their gimmick, change their style, the whole nine yards. Because back then, the territories, we talked about this just briefly earlier, they would have these little arrangements and deals between each other of like not going into my cities or not poaching my talent or things like that. But these wrestlers made jack shit during those days. They would make $50 for a show that they had to drive three and a half hours to get to. I mean, $25. Crazy, crazy, stupid, unlivable math, right? And in order to work in other territories, and this is, you know, before wide stream cable happened, they would have to change things out. But Diamond Dallas Page didn't do that. He was Diamond Dallas Page. In some form of fashion. Yeah. Know? And they've they've often rewritten his origin story a little mm-hmm. bit, like that Kevin Nash found him as a bouncer in a strip <laughs> club, and that's how he became part of WCW, which we all know was bullshit. He, oh, yeah. <laughs> he sent over a tape over to AWA in Vergania, and that's how he ended up in there. Yep. And, uh, you know, the thing is, once a lot of the talent left, AWA was still around. I mean, it was still kicking mm-hmm. for a few years and they used that as a real development area, so to speak, for other performers to come through and really kind of get the exposure that weren't necessarily ready for something like WWF at the time. Right. Uh, you look at somebody like Scott Hall. I mean, to go back and look at what Scott right. Hall looked like in the AWA. Those big fluffy <laughs> wrestling boots. Oh, oh my God. Gosh. That and the fact <laughs> to see Scott Hall with short hair, completely jacked out with a mustache. The handlebar mustache. <laughs> the handlebar mustache. <laughs> oh, I'm like, yeah. that's brilliant. But you had people like the Road Warriors. You know, they mm-hmm. didn't really get a good foothold in WWF until much later on. Right. Uh, the Midnight Rockers, which later became the Rockers. I mean, you know, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, you, you don't get more WWF 
in the 80s than those guys, but they started in the AWA. Yeah. And uh, the bigger one that, that most people forget about is Medusa. Medusa Michelli. Yeah. Uh, yes. Absolutely. One of the, the, the premier female wrestlers of that time. Alondra I mean, Blaze. Alondra Blaze. Uh, she actually also, one of her biggest sets that she worked was with Sherry Martell. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, another huge name, but. Uh, yeah, she didn't have a lot of kind words about Sherry. No, no, no. no that's all right. <laughs> Sherry didn't have a whole lot of kind words about anybody else. No, so. <laughs> no. It's really fun to talk about those people because you talk about these territory systems. They started off in other places. Scott Hall started off in Florida's Championship Wrestling, yep. right? I mean, the Road Warriors went through the NWA for years. And Japan. Right. And, and Japan. Mexico, yeah, and, Japan you know, I mean, big, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and that's the cool thing about all these territories is you get so many, you know, someone could have been something huge in Florida and an absolute no-name jobber in Memphis or vice versa mm-hmm. and just kind of work it around. I always thought it was kind of funny when I was younger getting those wrestling magazines and seeing all the different territories and how you would see the same guys as the champion in multiple different territories. Right. You know? And the titles, we're going to, we'll have episodes about the titles themselves because each territory would have its own title league system. But Mm -hmm. if they were part of the NWA, they also recognize the NWA's titling system. In in every life, some rain must fall. And unfortunately, with AWA, after, you know, a lot of the mismanagement stuff and so many people just leaving to go from there to WWF or NWA or WCW once it came out, they ended up closing their doors in 91. And I want to say Gagne was around a little bit longer after that. And then he he eventually passed away. Yeah. Early 2000s, I believe. Yeah. I, but uh, it is definitely a foothold. And, and and I would encourage all of our listeners, if you get a chance, just go do a search for AWA locations and see how much the United States, the AWA actually oh, yeah. took over. It's if you incredible. look at a territories map, the AWA, like it has this long swath yeah. all the way across the continent. And you're right. When it comes to territories, physical location, there's none that were ever larger during the territory days yeah. than the AWA. St. Paul, listen up. This is Jesse the Body Ventura talking to you from the Chicago Lake Liquor Store across from Sears in Minneapolis. Where should you turkeys go to buy your beer? Chicago Lake Liquor Store. You can get the finest in domestic beer as well as imported beer. You can drink little bottles or drink it like the body does. The territory system is pretty much done in this Mm -hmm. modern day and age of professional wrestling. But through its demise, there are still lingering effects and still things around this day of the territory system, not the smallest of which is the NWA, which is still kind of an operation. It is. It's still for, uh, I think now all of their stuff is online. They don't really right. have any kind of a TV deal with anything, like but they do TV still exist. Or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, there's even been talks of, of cross promotional stuff with some other groups. AEW, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and bring that one up because that's really the one that if you're going to find something that really shows the best example of the impact that the territory system had on wrestling today, AEW is a great example because they do so much with impact. They do stuff with New Japan. And they do mm. stuff with, you know, all of these others and do a lot right. of cross promotional videos on it. So that to me is the closest that you're going to find now for what it was like to be, to your point, George, in Georgia Southern and and watching, you know, Ric Flair and then watching Dusty Rhodes and then watching, you know, Jerry the King Lawler, all of which were based somewhere else. But because they allowed them to tour and jump into their particular territory, you got to see that. I think the biggest demise or the big focal point that most people think of for the demise of the territory 
territory systems is really the WWF, WCW, Vince versus Ted Monday oh, yeah. Night Wars Monday situation, Night Wars. right? Yep. That's when they took over programming, not just wrestling programming, but programming in general. I mean, their Monday night shows were out earning like professional basketball and professional mm-hmm. football. And I mean, beating Monday were, night football on a week to week basis. Yeah. I mean, nobody watching sports today would ever believe WWF or WCW would have outperformed garnered an audience than Monday night football, but they did on a weekly Mm -hmm. basis, but the territory systems definitely suffered because of it. Now you mentioned TNA impact wrestling. Mm -hmm. They did some work with NWA. They promoted their titles for a while on their programs. I think you're right that AEW though is really the nostalgic nod or look back (laughs) to the territory system. And I think it's in part because the guy who started that organization along with some professional wrestlers, he was just like us. He grew up as a fan of professional wrestling. Now he happened to be the son of a Saudi oil prince and have billions of dollars. And And so he can afford to do that team, but yeah, you know, And, and and this is not, you know, the the Tony Khan love fest. Don't get me wrong. Tony Khan has his faults just like everybody else on this. But when I found out that AEW had partnered with Ring of Honor mm. and brought Ring of Honor in and, you know, their work with New Japan and their work with TNA and these types of things and that you never knew who you were going to see. And the cool thing about that is this is where you get introduced to these indie goddesses and gods that you've heard about but never seen. Yeah. A perfect example. I had never laid eyes on Danhausen. I had no idea who this right. guy was until he actually showed up on AEW television. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. And that's one of the things that I like about AEW is, is that they help with the independent promotions. Yes. If anybody wants a great show, go to an independent promotion. They get the fans involved. They'll take your drink from, from you and hit the wrestler with it. <laughs> you get wrestlers thrown into you. Yeah. yeah. And there are still those independent little small local organizations Oh, around. Yeah. I go every year to a gaming event in Atlanta, Georgia. It's mainly about pinballs and video games. But at that event every year, there's a local indie promotion that puts on wrestling matches mm-hmm. in the convention itself in one of the rooms. It brings me back to those days of the territory systems. My parents tell stories of taking me as a baby to events in Kentucky and mm-hmm. then here in North Florida after we moved and how the wrestlers and the fans were just, it was like this collective mesh of, I don't know really how to describe it, of emotions, yeah. just the people feeding off of the wrestlers and the wrestlers feeding off the people. I think the territory days, albeit mostly behind us now, were the best example of professional wrestling. And that's why we named this podcast Turnbuckles and Territories, because it's really talks about what we grew up and what we loved. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I think that's super important. That will wrap it up for this edition of the Turnbuckles and Territories podcast. But in our next episode, we are going to talk about a specific wrestling championship in our title history series. We are going to talk about the Intercontinental Championship and specifically about one of its most prominent bearers, Razor Ramon. Could you say that it's survey time? <laughs> <laughs> I could not because I don't know how to roll my R's. <laughs> well, that just makes it one more for the bad guy. There you go. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much for being here. Had a blast, George. Aaron, always happy to have you. Always a pleasure. And listeners, we will look forward to talking to you again next time. Bye-bye. 
Before the days of internet and in YouTube, you we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude, and Jake would be the break. Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Buckles and Territories, we be stuck to screens in 1980.